all history is important. So much of black history has been undocumented, untold, misunderstood, obfuscated. And in this current environment, in many states like Florida, Texas, and others, it's being criminalized. World War I, the time period between 1912 through 1919, is a time that black folks need to examine closely because it says so much about black America, our progress, and the impediments to progress and what we are capable of. During this time, President Woodrow Wilson segregates the federal government, rolling back more of what happened during uh, the advances of Reconstruction. He also views birth of a nation, the very racist Ku Klux Klan propagandizing film in the White House. The massacres of Red Summer that occurred in Chicago, in Omaha, in Longview, Texas, and other places occurred during 1919. Now, Red Summer, for me, actually begins in 1917 in East St. Louis and extends through um, the massacre of and destruction of Black Wall Street in Tulsa in 1921. This is also a period when Fisk, Tuskegee, Atlanta University, and other black colleges are thriving. Black women are forming clubs and fighting for the right to vote and for health care and other things in education. The Pittsburgh Courier, the Chicago Defender, and other newspapers are taking up the mantle of, of reporting the struggles of black people and our triumphs. Jazz is invented during this time period and is thriving. And there are literally giants working on behalf of the race. Mary Church Terrell, Booker T. Washington, Ida B. Wells, Alice Dunbar Nelson, Charles Young, John Hope, and W.E.B. Du Bois. This is a time period. The time period of World War I is one that we need to examine closely and know closely and understand what it meant and what it means. Chad Williams is a professor of history in African-American African studies at Brandeis. He's captured the rich history and the complex history of World War I, but also equally captured this period or any period's most important intellectual, W.E.B. Du Bois. The book is titled The Wounded World, W.E.B. Du Bois and the First World War. It documents all of the things that were important uh, to World War One that we discussed uh, previously in this introduction, but also captures the brilliance of W.E.B. Du Bois, his commitment to black people, his flaws, and the fullness of his humanity. Uh, this book, for me, is a bridge between the gap of, of, of knowledge for black, of black history between Reconstruction and the Great Migration, which then leads into civil rights. This is an important book, but it's a book that is approachable. It's not watered down, but it's approachable for the layperson like myself and you. 
I encourage you to get this book for yourself, for your book club, or for high schoolers needing to read uh, as a bridge during the summer, uh, or anyone else. This is an important book. Now, always start here at the Parlay in All Blue because we got you. We got you. Listen, share, discuss, and act. You can support the show by leaving us a rating wherever you listen to podcasts. It helps others to find the show. You can also support the show by buying us a cup of coffee uh, at buymeacoffee.com backslash Mark Dawson. The show runs off of coffee and books. If we don't buy coffee, we will buy books. We thank you for listening and supporting us here at the Parlay in All Blue. Welcome. Dr. Chad Williams, welcome to the Parlay in All Blue. How are you? I'm well. Thanks for having me on. I am so glad to have you on. We are a couple of days ahead of Memorial Day, which I think is fitting for this conversation. And your book, which when we were talking off camera, is a wonderful book, The Wounded World, W.E.B. Du Bois and the First World War. My grandfather, my maternal grandfather, Henry Muse, was a World War I veteran. So I appreciate yeah. you writing it just, just based on that. Right. So listen, this was is a wonderful book. It's for me part biography. It's rich in history, rich in drama, rich in sort of capturing a lot of, of people who I revere as superheroes as humans. They're still super. Mm but it brought out their humanity. So this yeah. was a great book and it gave me a, an insight into seeing Dr. Du Bois work live and not just reading his rich legacy of intellectual work that he's left us. So this was all great. Thank you. And like I said, warmth of other sons filled in a big gap for me in terms of the migration, the great migration. Right. Dr. Du Bois' yeah. work on reconstruction, that period of time. And this book is doing it for me for its time period. But mm. to start this episode, we're going to transport to the ancestral realm. And we're coming okay. back because I got stuff to do. Okay. There's a jazz festival okay. in Atlanta this weekend. So I I have stuff to do. I need you to come you back. <laughs> All right. <laughs> but I want you to... Go to the ancestral realm, and there's Dr. Du Bois, John Hope, Charles Young, Joel Spingarm, and James Weldon Johnson. They're all sitting there, and mm. they want you to tell them what this book is about and why you wrote it. Wow, that would be an intense conversation. This book is about W.E.B. Du Bois, arguably the greatest Black intellectual, scholar, activist in American history, and his reckoning with the history and the legacy of the First World War. W.E.B. Du Bois, in all of his brilliance, 22 single authored books, attempted to write what would have been the definitive history of the Black experience in the war a book that he titled The Black Man and the Wounded World. He spent over 20 years working on this book from one world war to the next and never finished it. 
over 800 pages long, the manuscript. Never completed it, and it was ultimately never published. So my book is about Du Bois attempting to write what would have been one of his most significant works of history, and in the process, reckoning with very complicated personal and historical legacy of World War I. And in doing so, I also tell a much larger story about the struggle for democracy for Black people in the 20th century and what we can learn from that struggle as it relates to our struggles for democracy today. What attracted you to this topic? So I remember the moment very vividly. I was doing research for my dissertation, which would become my first book, Torchbearers of Democracy, African-American Soldiers in the World War I Era. And I was doing research at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, where the majority of Du Bois's papers are archived. And I saw a reference to Du Bois' World War I materials. I had no idea what it was. I go to the library and the archivist gives me six microfilm reels. And as I started looking at these microfilm reels, I discovered this manuscript, this incredible manuscript that Du Bois wrote that, as I said, he ultimately never finish. So this book came out of my research for my my first book, but it really tells a much larger story, certainly about Du Bois, but what it means to be Black, to struggle for your rights as a citizen, the conflict that arises when you are forced to choose between race and country, as Du Bois famously articulated in The Souls of Black Folk, the warring ideals of Black identity. Du Bois struggling through his writings about the war to try and make sense of that tension. Yeah. So let's pause there for a minute and dig into World War I a bit, and especially what it meant to, to Black people and why Du Bois would have devoted so much time to wanting to, to write about it. What did yeah. World War I mean to Black people? We have to keep in mind during the years of World War I, Black people were effectively second-class citizens. So this was at the height of the Jim Crow era. African-Americans throughout much of the country had been disenfranchised, were subjected to Jim Crow racial discrimination, horrific racial violence, lynching. So World War I was a really critical moment in the struggle for democracy and citizenship for Black people. African-Americans like Du Bois viewed the war as a potential opportunity to expand democracy for Black people, not just in the United States, but throughout the entire African diaspora. And he believed that hearkening back to other moments of warfare and Black military service, like during the Civil War, that Mm -hmm. serving in the military, that risking your life, that dying for your country would prove that you are indeed a full 100% American. He believed that this was going to be a transformative moment in the history of Black people in the United States. And that's why, against his beliefs, he decided to support American entry into the war and the larger Allied war effort. So let's talk a little bit about that period, because I want to say and you cite in the book that the years between 1912 and 1919 were no joke. It was a rough period for 
African-Americans. Yeah. So, you know, listen, for Black people that I talk to, there's always a, a sort of, man, boy, Reagan, boy, he was hard on us. And I can't believe we got Trump or whatever. So I'm always in those conversations. But yeah, Woodrow Wilson, the president yeah. at that time. So this was a time when Black people are maybe 50 years outside of the Civil War. Reconstruction mm-hmm. is done. You talked about there's not a perfect president. Give me some other things that sort of were affecting Black people during that time, just to make it clear, because there's a component of I want to make sure that people understand what yeah. this meant for Black people to commit themselves to the war. It was a very difficult decision, especially when you consider the conditions that Black people were facing during the years of the war. You mentioned the presidency of Woodrow Wilson. He screened Birth of a Nation in the White House, this horrifically violent, racist film, which glorified the Ku Klux Klan and demonized Reconstruction, effectively demonizing the very idea of Black citizenship. So at the highest levels of the federal government, you had just systematic attacks on Black citizenship and Black humanity. And this really permeated throughout the entire country, right? So Black people had to face this really incredible challenge when it came to the war. What does it mean to support a country that does not support you? What does it mean to be loyal to a country as an American citizen, staking claim to your citizenship but still having your basic citizenship rights and even your very humanity denied. That was the heart-wrenching question, tension that Black people had to face on the eve of the war. And that was a tension, that was a challenge that Du Bois was really right at the forefront of. Yeah, really capture a lot of that challenge and struggle in a real sense before Black folks before African-Americans even leave the country and headed overseas to France to begin to fight in in other parts of the world. Talk to me, especially because the talented 10th, that concept, that, that, that philosophy that Du Bois had was really the possibility of Black officers and their ability Mm -hmm. to lead and what have you was, he put a lot of hope in that. I would the way I read the book. Talk to me about their training beginning in Des Moines and then their treatment in World War I. Yeah, Du Bois was at the forefront of the fight to have African-American officers in the United States Army during the war. The War Department was very hesitant to, to commission Black officers, but Du Bois believed that if Black officers could receive training, that they would be the ones who would lead the race into the future, that they would demonstrate the capabilities, the intelligence, the leadership, the manhood of Black people, right? And serve as kind of shining examples of what you said, Du Bois' idea of the talented 10th. So even though the camp that was ultimately created in Fort Des Moines, Iowa was segregated, Du Bois believed that a segregated camp was better than no camp at all. And this was just one moment, one example, one of many examples of Du Bois kind of going against his principle when it came to the war, of supporting Jim Crow segregation in this case, but believing that in the end, it would result in gains for Black people. Black officers 
were were maligned by the United States Army. They were seen as as uppity. Uh, the very idea of a black man being in a position to give an order to a white man ran against right the established racial hierarchy of the military and the country more broadly, especially in the context of the South. So black officers especially when they went to France, had a very difficult experience. And Du Bois, he knew many of these men personally. So when they told him about the horrific racial discrimination that they experienced in spite of their officer status, he took that personally, right? And that was a part of his growing disillusionment that would really take hold immediately after the war. One of those officers who I am so glad that you highlighted and took the time to spend with who sort of represented the the best humanity, a best of military service, and also the struggles of what it means to excel as a Black person was Charles Young. Who yeah. was Charles Young? And do you can sort of distill that whole experience and struggle of the double consciousness mm. that really is exemplified in Charles Young? Yeah, Charles Young is just a remarkable individual. And I guess the best parallel would be with Colin Powell. Before there was Colin Powell, there was Charles Young. He was the most highly decorated Black officer in the military. He had a distinguished career serving in the Philippines, serving in Mexico. And he was on the cusp of becoming a general, becoming the first Black general in American history. He embodied, in Du Bois' eyes, the ability to reconcile the double consciousness that Du Bois writes about in The Souls of Black Folk, how it was indeed possible, as Charles Young demonstrated, to be both Black and be fully American. He was one of Du Bois's, if not his, closest African-American friend. They had a very close personal relationship. Their children, their wives knew each other. So when Charles Young was forced into retirement by the army for, quote unquote, health reasons, Du Bois was infuriated. And he made made it his own personal mission to try and get Charles Young reinstated, which ultimately didn't happen. But he believed that the treatment of Charles Young was an example of just how deeply racist the United States was, how specifically the United States Army itself was ingrained with white supremacy and how Charles Young's treatment was, in fact, an attack on the entire race, especially the Talented Tenth, which Du Bois celebrated. Yeah, thank you for that. I would urge people as they read this book to really make parallels between any career. You could do. You could pick somebody like Tony Dungy or how long it took him to become a head coach, or you can pick anybody at your job if you work in corporate as to why is this person not in the C-suite? And it Charles Young yeah. will inform a lot of that. But it but the the problems just weren't at the problems of racism and treatment weren't just at the officer level. And I'm gonna ask you to help keep me honest here. There are two units, the 92nd and then the 93rd, right? Either were made up of or had a significant portions of of black soldiers. And they had two different two experiences. Yeah. Give me, give me, sort of contrast those experiences and put it in the context of of this book and in America as a whole. Sure. So there were approximately three hundred eighty thousand African American soldiers who served in World War One. 
The majority of black troops served as service troops in the services of supply, as stevedores, as ditch diggers, laying railroad tracks, burying dead bodies, all the ugly, unglamorous work of the war. The military believing that black men were more naturally suited to be workers, to be manual laborers, as opposed to soldiers, right? Combatants as well as, as officers. However, there were two black combat divisions that were established. The 93rd Division was comprised primarily of black National Guardsmen from Chicago, from Washington, D.C., most famously from New York City, the famous Harlem Hellfighters, who would have a distinguished record during the war. The 93rd Division actually served in the French military, was the only American division to be incorporated into the French military, largely because the United States didn't know what to do with these <laughs> this collection of Black National Guardsmen. So they had a very unique experience and actually served incredibly well, were highly decorated, highly celebrated. The 92nd Division was composed of Black conscripts, of Black men who were drafted as well as Black officers from the Des Moines Officers Training Camp, as we were discussing earlier. They served in the American Expeditionary Forces as part of the American Expeditionary Forces. And as such, they were subjected to all of the institutionalized racism of the United States Army. The 92nd Division was commanded at the top levels by white officers who despised the Black officers under their command. And as a whole, the 92nd Division had a very difficult experience. Even though they performed on the whole very well in combat, they were maligned as being cowardly. Black officers were seen as being more preoccupied with chasing after white women. There were rumors, false rumors of rape. One division, one regiment, I should say, was accused of essentially being a failure on the battlefield. Uh, so this really became emblematic of how the army viewed black soldiers, right? And Du Bois, he was committed to trying to reclaim their history, to refute the lies and, and propaganda that was being spread about these men and the black officers in particular. And that's why he believed it was so important to write the history of the war and to do so correctly. He felt that he was the one who needed to write the history of the war and essentially come to the defense of these black men who he had encouraged to fight and die for their country. And listen, so part of also what I've read for anybody who's in early education, K through 12, or people who are in diversity work, if that's still a thing, in corporate or what <laughs> have you, one of the things that I saw was that with the 93rd being embedded with the French army and the uh, the attitudes of the French officers in the French military of their capacity to fight and serve really played a role versus the United States officers and army and, and those in DC yes. were really sort of creating conditions that that created chaos and even a military failure that was placed on black office black soldiers but it's a much more complex story yeah and i want to come back to that i definitely want to come back to that because you really document really well the meticulous and expanding and sort of nature of exporting segregation and racism and i want to get to it because boy i mean yeah for anyone who picks this up i think you will see that Th that 
the word segregation is not just people not liking each other or behaving badly. It is, it's just, it is an institutional thing in the United States was committed to segregation. I want to come to stick with Du Bois though for a minute. Talk about him going against sort of some of his principles and putting his credibility on the line and really drumming up support for the war. Talk to me about his essay, Close Ranks. Yeah. So in the July 1918 issue of the Crisis Magazine, which he edited for the NAACP, Du Bois writes arguably the most controversial editorial of his career, Close Ranks. He encourages African-Americans to set aside their special grievances, to temporarily set aside their special grievances, meaning Jim Crow, lynching, economic discrimination, et cetera, et cetera. Put all those grievances to the side for the time being, close ranks with their fellow Americans and the allies who are fighting for democracy. He is heavily criticized, to put it lightly, (laughs) for this editorial. His harshest critics accuse him of being a traitor to the race. And for someone like Du Bois, who literally dedicated his entire life to fighting for his people, to uplifting the race, to be accused of being a traitor, was the harshest criticism that you can levy at him. So this was an incredibly controversial moment in Du Bois's career, but one that was incredibly painful as well. Du Bois had to reckon with the weight of that criticism and immediately after the war, trying to make sense of why right he had wagered his credibility so much in supporting the war, right? Encouraging black people to close ranks when, as he experiences in the aftermath of the war, racial discrimination becomes even worse, right? So close ranks was really a pivotal moment in Du Bois's life where he begins to question whether or not his decisions to support the war were in fact correct, and if war itself can ever be justified under any circumstances. Yeah. So he was heavily criticized for that. And uh, you capture a lot of so much of just people during that period and just sort of the complexity of of, as a human, which I think is really important. But the notorious B.I.G. has a song called What's Beef? And Mm. when I look at Dr. (laughs) Du Bois, man, he had beef all the time. He stayed in beef. Uh, <laughs> he was somebody. So, so, I, but listen, he had hands. He had intellectual hands. He was ready to 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 oh, go he didn't back down. No, he, he, he had wasn't bars. Down. He had bars. So, yeah. So, <laughs> with that, just talk a little bit about the beef, and I'm talking about whether it's institutional beef, Tuskegee and the NAACP, or people like Emmett yeah. Smith. Or what have you. So let's just start with Du Bois and Tuskegee. And one of the things that you really captured for me as someone who's a layperson and not a scholar is that a lot of times Mm -hmm. it's captured as Du Bois versus Booker T. Washington. But Booker T. Washington has passed for a long time, but that institution, Tuskegee, carried on through Moulton. Talk to me about. Yes. So you got it. Talk to me about how that beef and sort of those 
philosophical differences shaped him being able to write or not write the wounded world? Yeah, Du Bois, he had a, a long memory and he didn't let grudges go. And even though Booker T. Washington passes away in 1915, he's very gracious after Booker T. Washington dies. He's still very much aware that the Tuskegee machine still has staying power. And really so much of the tension, the beef between Du Bois and Tuskegee, certainly it was ideological. Certainly they had differences of opinion as, as it related to the best approach for uplifting the race. But so much of it was also very practical. And this really revolved around resources and access yeah. to resources. To put it bluntly, who was going to be to get access to, to, to money? To who was going to have access to positions of influence within the government, right? So Du Bois was always very cognizant of the ways in which the, T the Tuskegee machine, through Emma J. Scott, who was Booker T. Washington's personal secretary at Tuskegee, Robert Moton, Booker T. Washington's successor, how they had certain privileges and access to power to influence that he did not have um, as a member, as a leader of the NAACP, which in the context of the times was seen as a radical organization and Du Bois himself seen as a radical voice. So a lot of their tension stemmed around, as I said, kind of access to power, resources, but it was also very personal as well. And as I delve into the book, his conflicts, particularly with Emmett J. Scott, became very personal and reflected Du Bois's ego, his, his conceit, his belief that Emma J. Scott was second rate when it came to his intellectual abilities and that no one could write the history of the war better than Du Bois. And Emma J. Scott even attempted to write the history of the war was something that Du Bois took really on a personal offense to. Yeah. So, so, you know, that writing the story of the war and Du Bois's pursuit of it drew me to Moby Dick and just sort of his chasing <laughs> uh, the great white world to, to, to me. Now, yeah. what were the challenges for Du Bois who, like you said at the beginning, I mean, it's unquestioned in terms of his intellectual capabilities. And you can see even during this period, I'm looking at my notes, Dark Water, The Gift of Black Folk, Black Reconstruction. He had Black Reconstruction. two or three Pan-African Congress meetings. So it's not like he, he wasn't capable or just took time off. This was very oh, yeah. difficult for him. Why was it so difficult for him to bring this, to bring this work to bear? Yeah, that's the central question, the central dilemma that I try and unravel in my book. Part of the reason why it was so difficult for Du Bois to write about the history of the war was his close personal attachment to it. The fact that he went against his anti-war principles. He considered himself a pacifist in supporting the war. And in the aftermath of the war, particularly after Du Bois visits Black troops in France, he comes back to the United States during the red summer of 1919 to race riots and lynching, the continued disillusionment of the war throughout the 1920s and 30s, he has to reckon 
with his decision to support this war, which becomes a failure. And the clarity of that failure, right, becomes more evident day by day, year after year, really decade after decade. So making sense of his own place in the war was a major reason why he wasn't able to fully make sense of it, both as a personal moment, but also as a historical moment. Certainly, there were a lot of other practical considerations. He was always busy. He was always trying to get additional support for the book in terms of research funding and foundations, which didn't support him. But ultimately, it was the challenge of the war itself, right? The challenge of writing about a moment in history that was still unfolding, that was still very much part of the present that Du Bois was in. So he wasn't able to really make sense of what the war meant. And by the time World War II arrives, he realizes that whatever lessons that he could impart through his history, at that point, it was too late. Yeah, it was really painful to read the beginning of World War II with you see Benjamin O. Davis being promoted to general as sort of a makeup call for yeah. not promoting Charles Young and Hasty replacing Scott in sort of an advisory mm. role. It just sort of stirring that sort of soup. Repeating itself. Yeah. Part of his premise, and if you could help sort of me and us understand, why did Du Bois think two things or two people or two groups of people were central to the war, sort of Africa and African resources as the sort of cause for the war, and then Black people as being the central actor in terms of bringing victory for the United States and the allies to the war. Yeah. So to your first question, Du Bois was so far ahead of his time in identifying the root causes of the war. He writes an incredibly brilliant essay in the Atlantic Monthly in 1915, titled The African Roots of War, where he identifies the origins of the war and the competition amongst the different European superpowers for imperial control of Africa, its human and material resources, and how these rivalries ultimately led to essentially a European civil war, which broke out in August of 1914. This is an argument that historians today still haven't fully appreciated. It's incredibly brilliant and clairvoyant, right, in centering Africa and peoples of African descent in the history of the war. And this really speaks to Du Bois's sense of a vocation as a historian, how he always centered Black people, their humanity, right, and believed that they were indeed the central actors of American history, of a world history for that matter. And this is what he wanted to do in writing the history of the war, right? And this is quite frankly what made it so controversial in the eyes of many white people, many white benefactors, philanthropists, foundations, who could not conceptualize a history of the war with Black people at the center, right? And all of Du Bois's works of history were envisioned, were constructed in this way. So he always had to go against the grain, fight against very powerful headwinds in trying to get his work published, largely because he insisted that Black people as human beings, as fully sentient, competent human beings, were central actors in 
the progress of history. Yeah, and listen, that ties into certainly a lot of what Howard French presents in his book, the Born in Blackness. Born in Blackness, yes, and he was a guest on our show. So now, forgive right. me for stumbling over the book. That certainly yeah, ties book. well into that. But just as I was reading in your book and thinking to Howard's book, the partitioning of Africa is 1883, mid 1880s, or what have you. And mm-hmm. then so it's just only 30 years later that now the world is at war. And if you think about mm-hmm. Germany kind of being behind, really England and France and that, that really kind of, of made sense. And I hadn't thought about it, but it, it yeah. really made sense. But what about the black soldier? He talked about the black soldier as being an essential to the war as well. Black American soldier mm-hmm. in particular. Yeah, Du Bois was envisioning his book being a global history of the war in talking about the experiences of African soldiers who served in the French military, of Black West Indian soldiers who served in the British military. But his central actors, as he envisioned it, were African-American troops. And he was determined to tell the truth about their historical experiences and to meticulously document the ways in which they contributed to the Allied effort and ultimately helped the Allies and the United States win the war. The majority of his resources, the majority of his research actually came from Black soldiers themselves. And I talk about this in the book, how he's encouraging Black soldiers to send him their materials, letters, diaries, photographs, military documents to make his history of the war 100% accurate and irrefutable. And they respond, just an incredible archive of materials that Du Bois amasses over the years, right? And he uses this in drafting his manuscript, which swelled to over 800 pages to demonstrate, right, in meticulous detail, the ways in which Black soldiers were discriminated against, right, the institutionalized racism of the United States Army, but even in spite of that, contributed to the victory of the Allies in the war. Yeah, listen, and if it, if there's one beef that I had with Dr. Du Bois in, in, in reading the book was, Dr. Du Bois, you got to get those people, man, their documents and their photos back. He kept them all the time. He sure did. Yeah. Yes, he did. Very selfishly, he did. Yeah. And it, it speaks to Du Bois's ego. And really, that's one of the tragedies of the story that I tell. Obviously, the tragedy of the war itself, the tragedy of Du Bois not finishing what would have been one of his greatest books, but the tragedy that so many Black soldiers invested their their hopes in Du Bois to tell their story, and he did not reciprocate. Yeah. So you talked about in, in, in the book, just you capture sort of the what's happening militarily, but there is a shift in terms of the attitudes about for Black people, something that I wouldn't call uppity, I would call it agency, beginning mm-hmm. with people moving to East St. Louis, people resisting in my hometown of Chicago in 1919, yeah. in Houston. Talk to me about the attitudes of Black people sort of during that time and the shifting attitudes of what it means to be Black and human 
Yeah, and th- this is why World War I is so important. When we talk about African-American history, when we talk about the broader struggle for Black freedom and citizenship and democracy in the United States, World War I was pivotal in terms of the demographic transformations of Black America, Black people migrating. You, you mentioned Isabel Wilkinson's book earlier, migrating to, to the North, to the Midwest, New York, Chicago, East St. Louis, other cities, right, demonstrating that Black people were not going to be simply satisfied with staying in the South, right, searching for freedom and opportunity and political rights as well. The democratic context of the war, right, the fact that Woodrow Wilson is arguing that the United States is entering this war to make the world safe for democracy, right? Black people latch on to that. And they believe that, okay, we're going to fight for democracy at home as well. Kind of a precursor to what becomes the Double V campaign in World War II, right? Really recognizing the hypocrisy of the United States in positioning itself as the global leader in democracy while democracy is being denied to Black people at home, right? So the democratic language of the war politicizes and increasingly radicalizes Black people, where they begin to stand up for their rights, where they begin to resist white supremacy with more militancy. And we definitely see this in the aftermath of the war as well, when Black people, Black soldiers, return back to the United States after having fought in France, after having risked their lives for the United States, only to be denied their basic rights and humanity at home. This paves the way for what came to be known as the New Negro Movement, as I talk about in the book, where you have a whole host of different radical organizations from the Communist Party to the Socialist Party to the Universal Negro Improvement Association, led by by Marcus Garvey, right, demonstrating that Black people are not going to be satisfied with the post-war status quo, right, that the war had changed, right, the attitude, the mindset, the consciousness of Black people that they were going to for democracy in the United States as well. Du Bois is so central to to Black America as the thought leader and an influencer during this time. And you talked about the New Negro movement, what have you. I did notice that as he would collaborate and bring other people in, that while he was he had certainly sort of beef, as we said earlier, with the Tuskegee machine. There were people like mm-hmm. Carter G. Woodson who maybe there was friction, but he ultimately respected. Just give me a little insight into what where was his what was his working style in terms of that period, in terms of who he would get stuff done with and who he'd just mm-hmm. say, I'm hands off. Du Bois was very difficult to work with. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there's a reason why he never co-authored any books yeah. because he was he was very difficult to work with. He believed that he was the smartest guy in the room and who could argue with him? First African-American right. to get a PhD from Harvard University, author of The Philadelphia Negro, The Souls of Black Folk. I mean, his pedigree spoke for itself. So he was incredibly conceited. He did not take lightly to anyone questioning his uh, credentials. And that made him very difficult to work with throughout his entire career and led to a lot of tensions within the NAACP. 
ultimately, Du Bois, I tried to flesh out his humanity in my book, how he was unquestionably brilliant, courageous in the face of incredible obstacles for a Black person, for a Black leader in the 20th century. But he was also flawed in many ways, right? And his ego, as I demonstrate in the book, was one of his major flaws and ultimately one of the reasons why he wasn't able to finish his book. Yeah. I thought you captured sort of that conceit and ego really well, but I thought you also captured that for the people like John Hope or Charles Young, James Weldon Johnson, people that he admired and wanted to be in in, in sort of community with, that he really admired them. And the last week's episode, we featured the life of Alice Dunbar Nelson. And in her book, Mm. Tara T. Green, there were some letters of where he's very familiar with her and very friendly and asking about her health and sort of really likes her. But I did notice that when he would seek sort of is ask college professors or what have you, or do you have a grad student or is anybody that is a historian? He didn't typically ask for women to be a part of his circle in writing. At least not in that way. That's uh, right, right, many right. There you go. That's, and that's a whole nother one. That's right. Yep. That's so that's all. That could be a whole nother book. That could be a whole nother book. Yeah. But certainly in terms of his intellectual circles, there are very few women who he brought into those circles. And certainly as collaborators, he did not envision, there were very few women who he, who he considered working with. And, I, and again, I think that that's one of, when we talk about Du Bois, who was very progressive when it came to women's rights, advocating for the rights of Black women specifically. We can consider him a feminist in, in many ways, but he was also very patriarchal. He was very committed to the uplift of Black manhood. The title of his book reflects that, The Black Man and the Wounded World, right? He did not see Black women playing a central role in the war effort as Black men did. So I think that's an area where we can certainly find criticism. Yeah. For uh, Dr. Du Bois, towards the end, of, and it's ironic that you, so we have him sort of going against his principles in World War One and writing closed ranks. And then we have in World War II with the double V, he says to close ranks again, essentially. And that is what it is. I, I don't offer that certainly as a criticism. I understand the complexities of all of this right now, even in going mm-hmm. to a neighborhood association meeting. So I yeah. get it. I don't offer that as a criticism. Certainly not. But he does those things so where he's very much criticizing the country when and where it needs to be criticized, but also ex- shows extreme or very significant patriotism in putting his personal credibility on the line and his intellectual prowess to support the war effort. But then we come to the United States versus the Peace Information Center at the end. What was that? And how do you think it affected Du Bois as he entered sort of the twilight yeah. of, his, of his years? So one of the arguments that I make in my book is that in order to understand Du Bois, in order to understand his political evolution, in order to understand his radicalism, we need to understand his relationship 
this very complicated relationship with World War I. In 1951, the federal government attempts to put Du Bois in jail because of his affiliation with the Peace Information Center, accuses him of being an agent of a foreign country, essentially a mouthpiece for the Soviet Union because he's advocating for peace. By the late 1940s and early 1950s, Du Bois is at the forefront of the international peace movement. During the height of the Cold War Red Scare. And for this reason, the federal government sees him as a threat, right? They put him, they, they indict him. Uh, he's on trial. They put him on trial. He's ultimately acquitted. But this was an incredible moment. 83 years old, Du Bois is facing years in jail and really speaks to the remarkable evolution of Du Bois's radicalism from 1918, where he's supporting the war and encouraging Black people to set aside their special grievances in closed ranks. By 1951, he's on the verge of being put in jail for his anti-war beliefs. It's really a remarkable evolution. And again, in order to understand that evolution of Du Bois into a radical peace activist, we have to understand how he is reckoning with the failure of World War I and more broadly, the failure of war itself. Yeah, when I was telling my son that was working on the show and reading this book and preparing for it. He said, the thing is with Du Bois, he said, he was so excited and he can't wait to hear this one in terms of how long he lived and he noted how he was able to change over time. And that that's a, that shows that while for somebody we can say it's conceited or certainly had a, a strong sense of self-belief, he was certainly open mm. to receiving new information and then reacting to it. So he's it, it's a, it's a, certainly an admirable yeah. figure to to say the least. And you capture him, and capture was, him well. And he was someone. And he was someone. Excuse me. To add to that, he was someone who failed. And I talk about this in the book. I divide the book into three parts: yeah. hope, disillusion, and failure. Right. And how. The failure of Du Bois to ultimately finish his book is reflective of the failure of World War I, the failure of war itself. But Du Bois used that failure, right, to become the radical peace activist that we were just talking about. So failure for Du Bois was generative, right? It was something that he didn't see as a mark of shame, that he used it to grow, to learn from his mistakes, to learn from his failure. And I think that's something that we can all learn from ourselves to take away from Du Bois and really use it as yet another example of what made Du Bois such a remarkable individual. Yeah. A couple of things as we begin to wrap up, there are a couple of people that I'd just like to, for you just to bring out a little bit, the Stevedores, the Doughboys in World War One. Why were they admirable people? I mean, if you think about the conditions that Black people faced during World War I and the fact that you have 380,000 Black men who serve in the United States Army during this time in a segregated military fighting for a democracy that they were not going to enjoy, the sacrifices that they had to make, truly remarkable, but also the fact that these men had these remarkable experiences, right? That they were able to see other parts of the country, to see other parts of the world, right? A black sharecropper from Alabama 
going on a ship and traveling to France, just opening up a whole new world of possibilities for what it meant to be a human being. Much Not to say what it meant to be Black, but to be a human being. It was really a radical moment in African-American history. And these men really laid the foundation for what we know today as the Black freedom struggle in the 20th century. And it's important that I think we acknowledge just how central they are to that struggle and the ways in which the war impacted them on so many different levels. James, James Reese Europe, who was he and what did, what was his contribution? James Reese Europe was, he introduced France to jazz. <laughs> he was the band leader for the famous New York 15th National Guard, the 369th Infantry Regiment, which was part of the 93rd Division, as we talked about earlier, which would come to be known by the end of the war as the Harlem Hellfighters. He was a acclaimed ragtime band leader in New York, was recruited specifically to create a military band in the 369th. And in the process, he assembled this remarkable collection of, of musicians who, when they got to, to France, kind of introduced the world to this new, exciting sound of jazz. And he was really one of several African-American band leaders, military band leaders, who transformed musical culture during the war and really ushered in what came to be known as the Jazz Age in the aftermath of the war. James Reese Europe died very tragically shortly after he returned back to the United States, but left an incredible legacy in terms of his contributions as a soldier and officer, but also especially as a musician and as a pioneer in what would become jazz. Harlem, New York, and the funeral of Charles Young. Really one of the most dramatic moments of the post-war period, Charles Young dies very tragically in Africa. And it takes over a year for his body to return back to the United States. And part of the funeral procession was his body traveling through New York City. One of the few moments when African-Americans had a public funeral procession, James Reese Europe being one of the few individuals before or Charles Young. It was a very uh, profound moment in the post-war history of Black people, especially in New York. And it was a moment that Du Bois was front and center in. And he writes about it in the pages of the crisis. And uh, that was a very important moment in terms of his like a deepening disillusionment about the war and how personal he took Charles Young's death as really an example of how the military failed this incredible man who had dedicated his life to fighting for his country. The Gold Star Mothers, the Black Gold Star Mothers mothers in particular, and uh, their experience. Yeah, the Gold Star Mothers, they were part of a larger program of the United States Army sponsoring trips overseas to France for the widows of fallen U.S. soldiers to visit the grave sites of uh, the men who were buried in France. But African-American women were Jim Crow. They were put on segregated ships, but they 
still believe that this was an important trip for them to make in spite of their, their segregated quarters. But it just really exemplified how even in the case of Black women, widows who had lost their sons, their husbands, their brothers, they still were subjected to the racism and the Jim Crow edicts of, of the United States. And this was something that Du Bois found particularly disgusting. Yeah. Yeah. So, so really thank you for that. And again, thank you for the Wounded World, W.E.B. Du Bois and the First World War and either the acknowledgments or somewhere at the end, because I want to, if I'm taking a class, I, I'm trying to earn my A. So I read everything. <laughs> you talked about uh, in 2020 and with COVID ra- ravaging that and having aging parents and the possibility of them not seeing this work. Were they able to read it? And They have, yeah. Okay, uh, good. I, I hope they read it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I did. Uh, but yeah, yeah, they're alive and well, and yeah, v- very glad that they were able to see the finished product. Good. You also talked about the importance of librarians and archivists, and uh, specifically, what caught my eye as a Jackson State alum and, and an HBCU parent. You talked about the importance of historical collections at HBCUs. Say a yes. little bit more about that. So the primary collection of materials, Du Bois's book manuscript and all of the research materials and correspondence related to it are located at Fisk University in the John Hope and Aurelia Franklin Library at Fisk. And it's just an incredible collection, just an incredible resource for historians and speaks to the rich history, the rich legacy of historically Black colleges and just the wealth of knowledge and culture that is housed in these institutions. And I think it's just so important as historians that we recognize that and really try and make full use of these these resources in our work, but also find ways to support them, to spotlight their significance so they have the support and resources that they need to continue to make sure that their, that their archives are open and accessible to scholars like myself. Yeah, no, I listen, I want to, for our audience to re-remind or remember that for this season, the episode we did on with Mary Emma Graham on Margaret Walker, the Jackson State's collection of Margaret Walker's writings. We did an episode on Ethiopian Christianity and the Tweed collection at Howard. You mm-hmm. mentioned in your book, Morgan State having, I think, Scott's yeah. paper yep. works and uh, Dillard but for both Margaret mm-hmm. Walker and then Alice Dunbar Nelson. So the we have to support these HBCUs, not only for the students who are attending now, but they hold so much of our history and legacy. You talked about the gatekeeping. There's a quote, and I don't have it here exactly, but you talked about at the beginning, sort of the pra- pragmatic reasons between the beef of the boys in sort of Washington and Tuskegee. And you said white philanthropists acted as gatekeepers for funding and that kind. Do you all, Black scholars, Black intellects, do you still experience that kind of thing? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think it's certainly gotten better since Du Bois's time. But as, as Black scholars, we're still always searching opportunities, particularly when it comes to resources to support our work. There's relatively few options out there specifically for 
Black scholars and people who are doing work in African-American history, African-American studies more, more broadly. So we face in, intense competition for, for grants, for sabbatical support uh, across the board. So it, it's still an issue. And I think there, there's still the challenges that Black scholars face in trying to explain our work, to justify our work to to white audiences to to white selection committees who are ultimately making these decisions and getting them to see the value in what we do but to also have them understand just what it means to be a scholar of black studies and the type of commitments and and ethics that that are central to to our work yeah well so listen i'm going to urge all of our audience to support our much needed our scholars who are a central part of our fight ongoing fight for liberation to buy these books especially this one the wounded world web du bois and the first world war we encourage independent booksellers black booksellers even better amazon has Enough, and I ain't mad at Amazon. We got a. I bet it, there's a ton of boxes on my front porch <laughs> right now, so they will be fine. As we close, we have a couple of questions that we ask everyone. And again, thank you for your time. Black people through bondage, through the Middle Passage, and through Reconstruction and the Nadir created dance and poetry and formed mm-hmm. families. And one of the one of the things after Reconstruction, Dr. Brian Mitchell, who was on our show, talked about. African-Americans lining up and getting married in these AME churches just after Reconstruction and what have you. And so we've always Mm -hmm. found a way to live and thrive. I want to ask you, what does it mean to live well? For me, living well means to love, Mm -hmm. to define love. And that could mean a lot of different things. That could mean loving another person in your life, loving yourself, finding something that you are passionate about, right, to to love and commit to, whether that's your work, your play, it, it can be a number of different things. But I think love has been such an important part of the Black experience in this country, right, in spite of all the challenges that we have faced throughout our history. Black people have always found a way to to love, and to use that love as a source of perseverance, as a source of resistance as well. Awesome. Thank you for that. And I checked on your Brandeis professor page, and you either teach or have taught a course in hip hop history and culture. Now, I want (laughs) to tell you that, man, these reconstruction babies don't know nothing about hip hop. Now, listen, I, let I, me tell you, I want you to I'm, teach, I'm teaching that class next semester. And every time I teach it, I, I got to let them know. Yeah, let yeah, them know. Well, 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 but listen, I said reconstruction babies, because here's what I want you to do. I don't want you to describe hip hop to these people or teach them about it. I want you to give an artist or record to these Reconstruction babies, James Weldon Johnson, 1871, Charles Young, 1864, John Hope, 1868, and Dr. Du Bois, 1868. So let's start with James Weldon Johnson. 
1871. I don't want you to tell him what hip hop is. I want you to say, here's a record or here's an artist. Go check it out for him. And then you got to do the other three. So for James Weldon Johnson? Yes. Oh, man. Tribe Called Quest, Low End Theory. Okay. All right. All right. Okay. All right. Charles Young. Yep. Charles Young. Oh, man. Jay-Z. Okay. But I got to pick an album. Let's see. I'll go with Watch the Throne. Okay. Watch yeah. the Throne. All right. All right. Very cool. Yeah, John- sure there's some interesting themes in there. Right? All right. All right. Okay. John Hope. John Hope. Outcast. Southern Playlistic. All right. We got to bring in some Atlanta. That's right. Right. That's right. That's perfect for him. That's right. And then Dr. Du Bois. Dr. Du Bois. Let's see. Oh, man. Well, I mean, he's so, so snobby. He probably wouldn't even like to listen to. (laughs) Right. 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 I'll say. I'll go with, oh, man. All right, Public Enemy. Takes a nation's a million to hold us back. I think he will. I think he can get with that. I think even if he... That might be a little bit too militant for Du Bois, but I don't know. Again, which Du Bois are we talking about here? Listen, we're talking about what I would describe as sort of the model for what a race man or race woman... Forget all of the sort of personal sort of flaws that we all have. So I think Chuck D will will resonate with Dr. Du Bois. Dr. Williams, we want to thank you for joining us. For everyone in our audience, please listen to this episode. Share it with other people. Discuss it. Act on it. And I think that this book, especially in this time period where there's an attack on Black history and sort of an erasure Mm. of culture, I think it's very important. It's one that I, as a layperson, not only read it, but really enjoyed reading it. So it's probably good for book clubs and just for individuals or even summer reading for high school students or college students. So I really appreciate you joining us. Uh, for other ways to support our show is you can always, like I said, like, share and rate the episodes. But you can also buy me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com backslash Mark Dawson. The show runs off of coffee and books. If we don't buy coffee, we will buy books. We appreciate you all. And this is the season finale for the Parlay in All Blue. We will see you next season. So thank you for everything. The Parlay in All Blue is produced by Raina Booth Podcast Productions. Music is provided by DJ Marky G. You can support us at buymeacoffee.com backslash parlay in all blue. Remember to like the show, leave a review, and share it. It helps to keep our work going and helps others to find us. If you have questions, comments, or show ideas, please email us at mark at the parlay in all blue.com. Finally, remember to follow us on social media and thanks, be well, and we out.